Uh, if you have your Bible, we're going to be in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. So I'd love it if you'd turn there. Um, it's definitely not going to be on the screen behind me, but you know, it wouldn't be anyway, because we believe that one of the best ways for you to grow in your walk with the Lord is for you to be in the Word regularly on your own, and we've learned that if we put God's Word behind me, then that discourages you from being in the Word regularly on your own. And so, anyway, um, no change really behind me this morning, but Acts 1, verses 6 through 11, that's where we're going to be together. If the Apostles' Creed did not say, I believe Jesus ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Would you have noticed? Right, if the Creed skipped straight from the resurrection of Jesus on the third day to the glorious return of Jesus on the last day, would you have skipped a beat? My suspicion is that most of us would say no to that question if we're really honest. And that's because the doctrine of the ascension of Jesus Christ, while a doctrine that was like cherished and very significant to the early church, is a doctrine that really just doesn't get a lot of play anymore among Christians today. It's certainly the least discussed aspect of Jesus's life and ministry. I mean, just think about the evidence of that for a minute. Christians have holidays for all of the big events of Christ's life and ministry, the things that we recognize as like the big pieces of Jesus' saving work, right? At Christmas, we celebrate Christ's incarnation. On Good Friday, we celebrate his crucifixion and death and burial. And of course, on Easter Sunday, we celebrate his glorious resurrection from the dead. We, we mark those days on our calendars. We celebrate those days. We mark them out as holidays, but we, we don't mark the day of the ascension of Jesus in the same way. Unlike those other holy days, we really have no special worship gatherings celebrating ascension day. Now, some of our Anglican and Methodist friends do celebrate Ascension Day, but I would be willing to bet Pastor Matt Perez's next paycheck that only a half dozen or so people in this room right now have ever been to an Ascension Day service. You wanna, you wanna test it out? Have you been to an Ascension Day service? Put your hand in the air. One, two, three, I see. That's what I thought. And it's just not something that we really mark as the church today. Another evidence of that, you've never seen an Ascension Day card. You've probably seen an Easter card. You've certainly seen a Christmas card. Maybe you've seen other cards marking other holy days, but you've never seen an Ascension Day card because they don't exist. Uh, my wife and I, we have a very dear friend. Her name is Karen, and Karen habitually sends cards for every occasion in our family's lives. Like she sends everybody a birthday card, she sends Christmas cards, she sends Easter cards, she sends Kristen and me an anniversary card. In fact, I'm sure there have been times when I've actually forgotten that my anniversary was approaching only to receive Karen's anniversary card in the mail and be reminded that I need to like be prepared for that anniversary, right? She's so faithful in sending cards to us, but she's never sent an Ascension Day card because they don't exist, right? There's no such thing as an Ascension Day card. The Ascension of Jesus, it really just doesn't get much love from us. However, it should. We should know and believe with true belief 
the wondrous realities and powerful implications of what the Apostles' Creed confesses, Jesus ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. By understanding and believing in the ascension, we can have all the resources we need to live our lives, to face whatever challenges come our way, and to live for the glory of Jesus. And that's what I pray the Holy Spirit allows me to show you this morning. To do that, we're going to start in Acts chapter 1, looking at verses 6 through 11. So at this point in the story of Jesus, the holy and righteous Son of God has died on the cross. He did that as a substitute, dying in our place, the death that he did not deserve, the death deserved by sinners like you and me. He bore the wrath of God as the just penalty for the sins of his people, and then he was laid in the grave. Three days later, he rose from the grave in glory and victory. He then spent 40 days upon the earth teaching his disciples about the kingdom of God. And all that teaching leads his disciples to a question. It's the question that we see from them in verse 6. Luke, who writes Acts, tells us. So when they come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, another way to ask that question, one that maybe like gets a little more traction with us, would be, Lord, is this the time when you're going to fix everything? Is this the time when you're going to make all things better? Is this the time when all of your promises about wiping every tear from every eye and making everything sad come untrue, is this the time that that is going to happen? And we should notice that Jesus does not promise to make those things better right away. He does not promise to fix everything that is broken right away. Instead, he gives his disciples two essential commands. He tells them to wait and to witness. They're to wait for the power of the Holy Spirit to come, and they are to witness through the power of the Holy Spirit about the person and the work of Jesus. Keep reading in verse 7. He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. And so the disciples are to wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon them. When he does, they're supposed to be witnesses through the power of the Holy Spirit to the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. By the way, for believers today, really only one of those two commands still applies. But if you're a believer in Jesus, then your waiting is over The Holy Spirit is in you, which means that all that is left for you to do is to witness. That's your job. That's that's my job. Charles Spurgeon, the famous British pastor, he once said, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter, which means that witnessing isn't an option for us, right? It's not something that's reserved for like the super elite Christians. It's what's reserved for all Christians. And if we aren't witnessing faithfully about what Jesus has done for us, then there is something that we have not completely grasped about what Jesus has done for us. But my purpose today is not to hammer that reality. My purpose today is to emphasize what comes next. And so Jesus tells his disciples, 
wait and witness. And then look at verse 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of sight. Now, scholars agree that this cloud isn't just any cloud. It's not really a meteorological phenomenon. It's a theological phenomenon. This is the cloud of God's glory, the same cloud that descended upon the temple to signify God's presence dwelling within his temple. This is the cloud of God's Shekinah glory. That's what the Old Testament calls it, which conveys a sense of like the weight and the awesomeness of God's presence, right? It is into this Shekinah glory cloud that the Lord Jesus ascends. That must have been a spectacular sight, which helps make sense of the fact that the disciples, they're still staring into the sky intently, so intently that they don't notice the fact that there are two white, shiny angels who have appeared next to them. Look at verse 10. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. In other words, he's not here anymore. So stop staring at the sky. Why isn't Jesus here anymore? He's not here because he has ascended into heaven and he is now seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. But what does it mean to say that Jesus has ascended into heaven. Well, perhaps it would be helpful to start with acknowledging what that does not mean, right? What does it not mean that Jesus ascended into heaven? We need to note the fact that the ascension of Jesus, it is not merely about a change in his location, right? Maybe if you are old enough, you've heard this statement made by Yuri Gagarin, who was the first Russian cosmonaut to orbit the earth, right? After his first trip to space in 1961, Gagarin, he famously said, I looked and I looked and I looked, but I didn't see God. In other words, I got to heaven and I looked around and I didn't see God there, so God must not exist. But what Christians need to understand is that the ascension of heaven, it doesn't merely mean that Jesus was on earth and now he's not anymore, but it doesn't merely mean that Jesus has changed his address from earth to heaven. It's not about a change of location. I mean, to consider that, think about even just how we use that English word, ascend. In English, that word, it carries something more than just a change of location, right? In my house, I have a, a two-story house. And when I want one of my children to go upstairs, do you know what I tell them to do? I tell them, to go upstairs. I don't say, child, I desire for thee to ascend the stairs. Right? I don't say that because that's ridiculous. We don't use the word ascend to mean that. If I'm feeling a little bit daring and I want to get the extension ladder out and put it up on my house so that I can climb up onto the roof, I don't say, wife, I'm now going to ascend the ladder to the roof. No, I say, I'm going to climb up this ladder and deal with whatever is going on on our roof. Right? We don't use the word ascend merely to mean a change in location. We use it to reflect like a change in status, right? It, it conveys like a change of status or, or position that's symbolized by going up. 
That's why we might say that somebody is ascending the corporate ladder if they get a promotion at work. But the most appropriate use of the word ascend in English today really pertains to the coronation of a new king or a new queen, right? The moment when a new monarch ascends to their throne for the very first time. We just saw this a few weeks ago in England when Prince Charles ascended to the throne in England and was coronated as King Charles III. Right on that day, Prince Charles, he climbed up the stairs of St. James's Place in London. He sat down on a chair that was on an elevated platform. But this time, when he climbed those steps and sat on that chair, on that raised platform, and a crown was placed on his head, he was ascending, not just to a platform, not just to a chair, but to an elevated position or status. He ascended to a higher level of power and authority. And you and I, we might climb those same steps and sit on that same chair, but that would not mean that we have ascended to anything. In fact, you could, you could probably do it. Like if you went to London today, you could visit Westminster Abbey. And Westminster Abbey on most days in most years, you can see on display King Edward's chair. King Edward's chair was carved from wood in the year 1296. And since the 13th century, every single English monarch, save one, Mary II, has ascended to that chair upon their coronation. Right, that's the chair that the English monarch sits in when they are crowned, when they ascend to their throne. And you could go and see that chair. I could go and see that chair. And we might even find a moment when, when the guards at Westminster Abbey aren't paying a lot of attention, right? We might even be able to find a moment when we could like sneak under the velvet rope and like sneak up the stairs and sit down upon that chair ourselves. And we would climb up to do that. We would change our position to do that. We would change our location to do that, but we would not change our status or our position. We would not ascend to any new authority when we did that. And in fact, we might, we probably would get thrown behind bars and so you could see that it was even like a demotion in position if you wanted to. But my point is that this idea of ascension, it's not just a change in where you are, right? It's a a stepping into like an elevated status of authority and power which is exactly what Jesus did when he ascended into heaven. He didn't merely change his location, right? He stepped into or ascended into a new position of power and authority in the universe. Now, from before the foundation of the earth, Jesus has been the King of kings and the Lord of lords, But when Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father and he sat down at his right hand, He assumed that kingship in a new way. Now, as we read about the ascension of Jesus in the New Testament, we begin to see that this reality that Jesus has ascended into heaven and that he's seated at the right hand of the Father, it's really incredibly good news for us. And what I'm going to do this morning with the few minutes that I have remaining is I'm just going to tease out three ways in which the ascension of Jesus means something for our good. And so three things this morning. Here's here's the first one. Because of the ascension of Jesus, the love and fellowship of God are now intimately and infinitely available to all people at all times. Since it's not on the screen, let me just read that again because it's a little bit wordy. Because of the ascension of Jesus, 
the love and fellowship of God are now infinitely and intimately available to all people at all times. Let me explain. So after his incarnation, when Jesus came to earth in human form, the thing that we celebrate at Christmas, right? After his incarnation, Jesus, he was fixed or he was limited to one place in time and one place in space, right? He was fixed to one point in the space-time continuum. And before you like go all like science fiction on me, let me just explain what I mean. Before his ascension, after his incarnation, but before his ascension, like if you wanted access to Jesus, well, you had to go where Jesus was, right? You had to find him. And you had to be able to live when he was living, right? And in those few decades that he walked the face of the earth, like those were the only people who had any possible access to Jesus. And then really practically speaking, only the people who could travel to Judea or Samaria or Jerusalem or wherever Jesus happened to be. And so if you wanted to be taught by Jesus, you had to take a trip to find Jesus and learn from him. If you wanted to be healed by Jesus, you had to take a trip to find Jesus and be healed by him. Access to Jesus was only available in one place and at one time. But because of his ascension, Jesus has now been elevated out of time and out of space, and he is therefore infinitely and intimately available to all people for love and for fellowship. Now, Jesus has not ceased to possess his physical body, Right? He still bears the, the scars from the nails and the spears that pierced him when he died on our behalf. But in his physical body, he is now spiritually accessible to all people who come to him in true faith. Actually, and this is, this is mind-blowing, but Scripture says that because of the ascension, Jesus, through his Holy Spirit, is here in you presently, and you are presently at the right hand of God if you are in Christ. And so think about that in in both of those dimensions, right? Jesus has made himself alive in you through his Holy Spirit. And if you're united to Christ by true faith, then you are in Christ, in the presence of God, seated at the right hand of God in the throne room of God. And so we see that in scripture, right? If you were to keep reading in the book of Acts, you would read about in Acts chapter two, the Holy Spirit descending upon the church which tells us that the blood of Jesus is so powerful to purify us from our sin that that saving blood makes us acceptable dwelling places for the Holy Spirit of God. And so Jesus, through his spirit, is alive in us. But that's not all. We're even alive in him. And so even as he's ascended to the throne of heaven, we are in him and we are therefore ascended with him. This is what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, he says, God has raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I want you to hear that those are past tense verbs, right? This isn't something that will happen in the future. It's something that spiritually has already happened. God has raised us up, past tense, with Christ, and God has seated us, past tense, with Christ in the heavenly places. And so the presence of Jesus, it's so infinitely and intimately available to you that you are not even barred from the heavenly throne room, right? You are there in Christ. You might get kicked out of Westminster Abbey, but God the Father will not kick you out of his throne room because the presence of Jesus is infinitely and intimately available to all of us. 
Now here's what that means. Because of the ascension of Jesus, simply never a moment when you're far from him or when he's far from you. Right? It doesn't matter how you feel. It doesn't matter if you doubt. It doesn't matter if you are weak in your spiritual disciplines. It doesn't matter if you have sinned. If you are among the people of Jesus, then the ascended Christ is present in you and you are present in him. You can never be far from his love. You can never not have fellowship with him. His love and his fellowship are infinitely and intimately available to us all at all times. I mean, perhaps you've, you've come in here today really wounded, really hurting, really discouraged. Perhaps you're overwhelmed by your own sin. Perhaps you're just really grieved by the sin of someone else. Perhaps you've been weak and anemic in your spiritual disciplines. Perhaps you've blown it just again and again and again in your life and you're thinking like, there's just no way that God would want to be with me. Friend, the ascension of Jesus is good news for you. It means that no matter how rejected or disconnected from other people you might feel, no matter how weak your disciplines are, no matter your doubts, no matter your fears, no matter your insecurities, you are infinitely loved and near to Jesus himself. You cannot be far from his love. You cannot be far from him. If we grasp that, we'll find in the ascension of Jesus the resources that we need to face any kind of challenge or heartache or rejection in this life. The second thing the ascension means for us is that Jesus is, at this moment, reigning over creation with supreme power for our good. At this moment, because he has ascended and seated at the right hand of God, Jesus is reigning over creation with supreme power for our good. Now, the Apostles' Creed, it makes the point of confessing not just that Jesus has ascended, but that he has ascended and is seated at the right hand of the Father Almighty. Why is Jesus at God the Father's right hand? Why is he not at his left hand, for instance? Well, in ancient cultures, the, the one sitting at the right hand of the king was a person who was like the prime minister, but he was the one who was responsible for running the kingdom on the king's behalf. And when Jesus ascends and then sits at the right hand of the throne of God, he becomes that administrator or executive director of all of history. He assumes the power and authority to shape the direction of current and future events, and nothing is therefore outside of his authority. And then the Bible would teach us that he directs history for our good. He uses that authority for our good. He reigns over creation with his supreme power for our good. This is how the Apostle Paul described it. And now in Ephesians chapter one, Paul writes, God the Father worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, so there is resurrection, 
and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. There's ascension and and session. That's the word theologians use when they talk about the fact that Christ is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So he's raised and he's seated far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And so Paul is saying there in Ephesians 1 that God the Father has exalted the Son, Jesus, to a higher position and status that any being has ever had or will have, and he's been given a name that is supreme above every name that any creature or any being might have or will have, and that he's been given that exalted position and that exalted name for all eternity, Right, that there will never be a moment when Christ is not reigning supremely as king and there will never be a moment when Christ does not have the most exalted name in the entire cosmos. But there's more. So what about that? Well, in the very next verse, then Paul adds this. He's still talking about the resurrected and ascended and seated Jesus and he says in Ephesians 1.22, and he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, to the church. And so, in other words, Christ has been given all authority, and Christ has been given all authority, and that reality, the fact that Christ is seated at the right hand of God, is now given as a gift for the sake of the church. Jesus, he exercises his cosmic authority for the sake of the church. He's the ascended king and God gives that ascended king as a gift to you and to me. Which means we can be sure if we belong to Jesus, that we belong to Christ's true church, then that means that Jesus, he reigns over all creation in supreme power for us. And so there's not a moment of your life or of mine over which the ascended Jesus does not reign in supreme power for our good. But there's not a circumstance or situation in our lives over which the ascended Jesus does not reign for our good. The good things and the bad things, the big things and the little things and everything in between, Jesus reigns over all of those things from the throne to which he has ascended and been seated in heaven and he reigns over them for us. When I was a child, we spent a good portion of the first 12 or so years of my life living in Europe. My dad was stationed there uh, with the US Army. I mean, that meant that among other things, I became acquainted from a very young age with really long airplane trips, right? Transatlantic airplane trips. Anytime we were coming home to visit family or moving from assignment to assignment, Really long airplane rides. Um, And I remember all those years ago, as a young man, sitting on an airplane next to my parents and my brother, like kind of being confused about the fact that every time you got on an airplane, the pilot of the airplane always came on the intercom and and made a habit of introducing himself to us. But you probably know what that sounds like, right? Ladies and gentlemen, this is Captain Emery McNeely speaking. Our cruising altitude will be, et cetera, et cetera. And I just always wondered why the the airplane pilot wasted our time saying that. And, and so one time I, I asked my dad, I was like, Dad, why, why does the captain do that? Why do we care what his name is? Why does he always tell us his name? And I still remember 
30-something years later. My dad's answer, he says, well, he wants us to know who is in control of the plane. Don't you think if we're going to trust him with our lives for the next eight hours flying on this plane, that it would be good to know the name of the man who is in charge? Well, Christian, you know the name of the man who is in charge. You know the name of the man who controls not just the next eight hours of your life, but all of history. And not only do you know his name, but you know that he loves you enough to have died for you. And as he steers history, he steers history still with the scars and the nail prints on his hands and his feet, the scars that he earned for your good, which means we can be sure that he will reign over history for our good as well. This morning, do you feel anxious? Do you feel nervous? When you look at the world, when you look at our country, when you look at our church, when you look at your family, when you consider the next days or weeks or months or years in your own life, do you feel burdened or anxious or concerned? Look to the ascended Christ. You know the one who is in charge of all things and he reigns with supreme power for your good. Always. All right, the third and last thing that the ascension means for us. It means that the ascended Jesus guarantees that we are forgiven, accepted, and delighted in by the Father. The ascended Jesus guarantees that we are forgiven, accepted, and delighted in by the Father. I wonder in what area of your life you most felt the painful realities of your guilt and shame this past week. Because you think about the life that you've lived just in the last week. Even if you were forced to watch a replay of your life this past week, a replay that revealed, you know, not just the things that you did, but the things that you really should have done that you didn't do, and not just the things that you did, but the things that you felt, the things that you considered doing, the things that you really wanted to do, even though you knew that you shouldn't do them. If we could watch a replay of who you really are and get a window into who you really are over the past week, what part of that past week would be most painful to you? Perhaps it would be the way you parent your children. Right? I don't know any task that provides a relentless testimony to your own sinful self-centeredness like raising children does. Perhaps it would be your impatience in general or your temper, or the way that you used harsh words to tear people down rather than kind and compassionate words to build people up. Perhaps it wasn't anything that you said or did all week long. Perhaps it was the things that you just flat out didn't do. Or maybe it was even just the desires that raged silently in your heart. The desire for control, the desire to win, the desire for approval, the desire for power, the desire for comfort. I wonder in what area of your life 
you most felt the painful realities of your guilt and shame this week. Because of the ascension of Jesus, we know that God does not hold those weaknesses or failures against us. In fact, because of the ascension of Jesus, we know that we are forgiven by the Father and accepted by the Father and even delighted in by the Father. How do we know that? Because the Bible tells us that Jesus is in the throne room of the Father and he is interceding for us. And so imagine for a moment the throne room of heaven, right? God the Father is seated on the throne and he is infinitely holy, which means he is terrifying to behold, right? The Bible tells us that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all, which means that creatures like you and me who have darkness all shot through us dare not approach him. The throne of God is surrounded by these like freaky looking many-eyed creatures who just declare for all eternity to one another into God. God, that God is holy, holy, holy. This is the reality of the throne room of God. He is terrifying to behold because he is so completely pure. But when you enter his throne room, the one who sits nearest the Father, the one who is at his right hand, he speaks for you and he speaks for me. He says, not because of your righteousness or your works, but because of his blood, he says, this one is welcome because this one belongs to me. I accept this one and I delight in this one. And so in his intercession, he brings you to his father who also delights in you and accepts you. Right now, Christian, there will be many voices between today and the day that you see that throne room when you will, those voices will speak to you and try to tempt you to believe that you do not belong in that throne room. Satan will recall to your mind all of your weaknesses and all of your failures. You will remember your guilt and your shame. You will consider your sin. You'll remember the weakness of your devotion to the Lord and you'll be tempted to despair. But he ascended to Jesus. He speaks for you, and because he speaks for you, you will be welcomed into the loving embrace of the Father. This is what Romans 8 says. Paul asks, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? And he answers, Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God who is interceding for us. Church, if Jesus intercedes for you, then no one can bring a charge against you and no one can condemn you because that means that the closest, most trusted and influential person in the presence of God, he speaks for you. He intercedes for you. And because of him, the Father will welcome you. This is what the ascension means for us. It means we can know the love and fellowship of Jesus infinitely and intimately. It means that we can trust that Jesus is at this very moment reigning and ruling over all history for our good. And it means that our acceptance and favor and forgiveness from the Father are secure. Do you have 
the kind of communion and fellowship with Jesus that the Bible says is available? Do you feel the comfort and peace that come from knowing the one who rules sovereignly over all of history? Do you have the joy and security that come from the image of Christ's intercession for you? Look to the ascension of Jesus by understanding it and by believing it. We can have all we need to live our lives faithfully for the glory of Jesus. Pray with me. Jesus, we praise you this morning because you came in human form. You were incarnate. We praise you this morning because you lived the perfect life that the holy and righteous law of God demanded. We praise you because you died in our place, a death that you did not deserve, a death that we do deserve. We praise you because you rose from the grave in victory and power. We praise you because even now you are ascended to the right hand of God the Father and you are seated next to our Almighty. We pray, Jesus, that you would be near to us. You are in your presence infinitely and intimately available to us. So be near. Now, Lord Jesus, you don't need our permission. We praise you because you sovereignly reign over all things for the sake of your church and for the sake of your glory. And so we ask you to rule over our lives. You don't need our permission. And you defend us. You testify on our behalf. You intercede for us before our just and holy Father. You needed not our permission. But Jesus, these realities, they they press into us and, and reshape our hearts so that we gladly invite you to minister to us as you do. And so that we gladly submit to you to live as you've called us to live. Help us to do that now. We pray these things, Jesus, in your holy and righteous name. Amen.